Alright, if you can make it to Philippians chapter 2, whatever form of the Bible you use. Ah, there's some electronic folk out there. I'm going to keep this in context, so I'm going to start with verse 1. So, we more than we're normally doing. <clears throat> So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of, in full accord, oh, sorry, uh, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word of encouragement. Uh, we thank you for uh, the scriptures that give us hope. Uh, we thank you for the scriptures which teach us the way of righteousness. Oh, not just being wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, but then also how to live because we have faith in Jesus Christ. And so depending on where people are this morning, we ask that you would work to accomplish those two things. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm sure you all would agree that last week was in some sense a text that is very difficult here, particularly with the idea of we're supposed to have the same mind which was in Christ Jesus, and to hear this call to humility, this call to obedience to God the Father, and all things, regardless of how it ends up. In other words, I essentially called you, or Paul called you, or Jesus called you, to being a nobody and to humble obedience to God. And such a thing is not glamorous. People usually don't, you know, show up to sign up for that. And it doesn't at first glance appear to be something successful, something you want you want to hang your hat on. And so there's a question that naturally arises when we consider humility, when we consider obedience, And that is this, uh, does humility pay? I use that term, pay, loosely. Won't humility 
mean that I tend to get the short end of the stick of life? That's an honest question. That's a good question. I think that's an important question. And that's the question we're going to look at today. And as we do that, you're going to notice that the notes look a little different. There's a reason for that. And we'll see what happens. Let's ask, let's ask that question, or rather, let's begin to answer that very question. The initial response to Jesus' humility was death, and not just any death, but death upon the cross, death as a criminal, death as worse than a nobody, a slave, an insurrectionist, which is not exactly what we would think of as a ringing endorsement of humility and obedience. But rather, it seems to be something that we would want to avoid at all costs. But that's just part of the story. And if Paul Harvey were still alive, he would now want us to talk about the rest of the story. And there's that very important word, therefore, in the text. Therefore, as a result of this, in other words, God has gonna, is doing something, has done something. Jesus has humbled Himself. Jesus has emptied Himself. And now God is going to respond to that emptying, to that humility, to that obedience, to that sacrificial death. Jesus. Something's going to happen to Jesus. But let's pause for just a second. Because it says, therefore God, and let's let's not think for for a moment that this somehow means that Jesus isn't God. Remember, we talked about that last week. He was in the form of God. His very essence was God. And He appeared to be God to anyone who had looked upon Him prior to His incarnation before He emptied Himself of these things. This could refer to the Father Himself. Paul often does that. Or it could refer to the whole Godhead in unison acting. But God did something in response. And that something is that God has highly exalted Him referring to Jesus. You see, again, Jesus actively humbled Himself. Therefore, God exalted Him. Now God is the active part of this. Jesus is the one who is passive. He's the one who receives this exaltation. It's not that something, it's not something Jesus does for Himself. Let us not think of Jesus as somehow storming the gates of heaven. Give me my due. That's not what we see here. He became the lowest of people, the lowest of rank, a slave, and then is raised in rank and is raised in power above all things. He is highly exalted. Scripture has another similar picture of this in the life of David. Uh, David went from being a shepherd boy, one of no power and of ill repute. People didn't like shepherds in those days, and frankly, um, I don't know if I've met anyone who likes shepherds. Uh, They don't really talk about that. But David went from shepherd to king of Israel. He was exalted in rank above all others within the nation of Israel, and he is the one who led Israel to its greatest strength 
and power as a nation. David went from nothing to everything. And yet, we see in 1 Kings chapter 10, it says, Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the, the name of Solomon more famous than yours, and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed. And so here is David has been exalted from shepherd to king, and his son is hoped to have a greater name than David himself. This exaltation of Jesus is not an accident, but we see that this exaltation was promised in the servant songs of Isaiah, particularly uh, Isaiah 45, which is why we read from it this morning. In other words, this is a promised thing to the Son. It is part of that eternal covenant between the Father and the Son, which we talked about at length in, in John's Gospel, where in John's Gospel it focuses on the fact uh, that the Son came and died and the Father promised to give Him a bride, give Him a people. Okay? Well, here it's, Jesus comes and empties himself and the Father is going to exalt him and grant him this great rank, privilege, and power. And so it was promised to the Son. And so when he experienced his humiliation, he, he knew that this exaltation would come. He trusted, so to speak, um, as man for this exaltation. How is it that God exalted him highly? We see that God bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And what's the interesting thing of this word bestowed is that it, the root of it is grace, charis. It's natural for the eternal son to be exalted. But remember, he's not just eternal son. Because of the incarnation, he is now eternal son and Man. And he's going to be exalted above all things. He, he, as the son of David, deserves the throne of David, and he's going to receive the throne of David, but he's going to receive something else. A man is going to sit at the right hand of God the Father. Do you understand that? The amazing of this, the, that should be astounding to us, that the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, has been exalted and sits at the right hand of God the Father to rule in His stead. That is the exaltation of the eternal Son, of the Messiah. He's been raised to the highest place, the imaginable. can't help but think of Genesis 11. The people of Babel, as they built this tower, part of their express purpose was to make their name great. In other words, they wanted to build themselves a reputation. They wanted to accumulate to themselves power and authority by building this tower into the heavens. And what happens? God scatters them. He humbles them who tried to exalt themselves and makes them nothing. 
What happens in the very next chapter of Genesis? God comes to this man called Abram. And part of the promise that he makes to this man, Abram, who is pretty much nobody, I will make your name great. That's one of the promises that is given to him. Not that you will have a great name, not that you'll work really hard and get yourself a great name, but that I will make your name great. Establishing the pattern that we see in the ministry of Jesus, it is God the Father who makes His name great, not Jesus who made His name great. Because we, again, can't say this enough. Apparent, well, yeah. He humbled Himself. That's what he sought, to humble himself. And then the Father lifted him up and made his name great. Now, that name above every name? What is that name? Some people think that name is the name Jesus, which texturally I can see the attractiveness of it, because later on it's going to say, at the name of Jesus... But we recognize he already had the name Jesus. So it's probably not the name Jesus. Most people believe that it's Lord. At the name of Jesus, people will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Referring to the fact that he is Yahweh. When you go to the Old Testament, particularly the servant songs, um, the, when the Greek translation of those songs that word is used before Lord, Yahweh. Okay? So most people kind of go in that direction. We see from Acts chapter 2, for instance, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so I think there's, there's, there's that element of Lord, but Sinclair Ferguson goes a little different. And he goes back to the servant songs again. And he says that usually where these are these things are joined together, these two things are joined together, that God is Savior as well as Lord. That the, the drum beat that we see through the theme of the servant songs is Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord. And so Jesus is Yahweh, He's Lord, but He's also Savior. In other words, His name, Yeshua, Jehovah saves or Yahweh saves, is personified in Him. It's not just a testifying, but He is the Yahweh who saves His people. So, if we think of these things, we can realize that it paid off, so to speak, because the Father fulfilled His promise to exalt the Son, our Savior. And so that's the first part of answering our big question this morning. The Father fulfilled His promise to exalt the Son, our Savior. But wait, there is more. Because Paul keeps going. 
In addition to the exaltation by, by God, there's also going to be a creation-wide response to this exaltation. For the very next words, so that, or in order that, the following might occur. And so Paul sees this logical progression that takes place. Jesus humbled Himself, therefore the Father exalted Him in order that the next things would take place. In order that, specifically, at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. In other words, everyone shall acknowledge His authority. We tend not to think of um, bows in terms of knees, we you know, think of bows in terms of the waist. But this, of course, is homage to a king. Where you're expressing your fealty to the king, your reverence before the king, your submission to the king. Every knee is going to bow in submission to this Jesus that the Father has exalted. Every knee, every person will acknowledge his rightful authority, his legitimate authority. But let's pause for a moment. As Paul says in, uh, in Romans, as well as in 1 Corinthians 15, as the author of Hebrews notes, notes elsewhere, that it doesn't look that way now. They use different terminology. But he's seated at the right hand, and the promise is, until I make your enemies your footstool. And so there's something that's going on now in the present. It has not yet been fully accomplished. Jesus is already exalted at the right hand of the Father, but every knee has not yet bowed before him. Many have, but the truth is that all of them eventually will. And we have to be very careful about what we mean by that. So hang on. Don't throw stones at me just yet. Okay? Because Paul continues. When he talks about every knee shall bow, he says, in heaven and on the earth and under the earth. He's using this uh, threefold designation to kind of talk about the fullness of it, the completeness of it. But also we have the realities of essentially of heaven, of earth, and of hell. And in heaven, it's happened. There is no being that does not bow except the Father and the Spirit before Jesus. And we see that in the book of Revelation. He is exalted. He is recognized as a legitimate authority. He is worshipped. We could possibly say that those who are in hell now recognize already that Jesus is Lord and bow before Him, not willingly, not joyfully, not savingly, but they recognize He's in control. Because they're trapped. 
And right now on earth, that process is taking place. There are many who have bowed the knee before Jesus. And eventually we will end up in one of those two places where we're willingly bowing the knee before Jesus in heaven or people will be reluctantly bowing the knees, knee before Jesus in hell. This, I think, points us to that not yet aspect, the thing that we wait for, the redemption of our body, the public adoption of His adopted sons that we see in Romans 8. So not only will these uh, knees bow, but every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. They will acknowledge His Lordship. They'll acknowledge His divinity. They'll acknowledge His rule and power. Jesus, not Caesar, for the context of the Philippians, is the Lord of the earth and is the only one who can save sinners. The question, of course, for the Philippians and then for us would be, is that who you trust? Is that where your hope lies? And the one whom God has exalted, or does your hope lie somewhere else? In something else? This is just a fulfillment, as I said, what we see in Isaiah 45, and for those who are hearing, remember that it said to about Yahweh, to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. And that's all Paul is saying. That that's happening, but it's applied to Jesus. He is the eternal Son who took on flesh, died for our sins, and has been exalted or raised and ascended to the heavenly places to be seated upon God's throne. And so, again, while all will not love His Lordship, all must admit that He is Lord. These days, it's quite interesting because of that phrase that has emerged in our uh, vernacular, not my president. To which I would say, then, who is your president? Is there someone else who's occupying 1600 (laughs) Pennsylvania Avenue? The question is not whether one um, voted for the president or agrees with the president. If you're a United States citizen, he's still your president. Like him, love him, hate him, whatever. He's your president. You do, he still represents you. And so you can't dash off a letter to the Prime Minister of Canada and say, you know what? I still want to abide by NAFTA. That power is not given to you. Okay? The president represents you whether you like it or not whether you agree with it or not. In a similar fashion, Jesus is Lord whether people like it or not. There's no rival to Him. There's no one else who sits upon the throne. There's no one else who can open the scrolls in Revelation chapter 4 but Jesus and Jesus alone. Now this all happens 
to the glory of God the Father. In other words, let's rewind just a little bit. Remember last week, we talked about that idea that, that equality with God was not something he thought he could hold on to or should hold on to or something he should grasp. And sometimes people grasp after glory. Jesus is not grasping after glory that does not belong to him. He's not, he was not clinging to the glory that did rightfully belong to him. But this is all done by the Father for the Father's glory. I can't imagine what this is like. I got a glimpse, so to speak watching the two towers. Everyone thinks Gandalf is dead and Gandalf the Grey looking pretty shabby in his wizard's clothes. And then they encounter the white wizard who, unknown to them until they finally realize it is Gandalf the White who is now glorious. Him who they thought was dead is alive and is filled with glory. Jesus, whom everyone thinks is worthless and unimportant, has been made glorious to the glory of the Father. You see, the Father and the Son are not competing for glory, but rather they share glory, and beyond that, they're glorified in one another. It's the Father who glorifies the Son by exalting Him, but the Father then gets glory because the Son is exalted. So we see that Jesus is not in competition. He's not trying to steal anything. But that his exaltation brings glory to the Father. And so the second way we would say that this humiliation paid off was because all creation will acknowledge the Son as supreme authority and Savior. So again... First we see it pays because the Father fulfilled His promise to exalt the Son, our Savior. But secondly, all creation will acknowledge the Son as supreme authority and Savior. So thirdly, what does this mean for the Philippian Christians? And what does this mean for us? Let's go back to where we started this. That phrase that that begins this uh, sequence here, we are to have the same mind as that which was in Christ Jesus. If we have that same mind, we will humble ourselves and wait for God to exalt us. We are going to turn away from the uh, look-at-me culture. We're going to turn away from our desire for earthly glory. We're going to turn away from our quest for power. We're going to turn away from our people-pleasing. And we're going to wait until such time as the Father exalts us. Because like Jesus, He had the promise that He would be exalted. We also have a promise that we will be exalted and receive a great name in Jesus. 
How do I get there? Well, first I get there from Genesis 12. There's the promise, the Abrahamic covenant. And we see, of course, from Galatians 3, that Jesus fulfills the Abrahamic covenant, which is also the point of Matthew's gospel. 1-1. This is the story, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And then it gives the genealogy. He's the one in whom the covenant with Abraham is fulfilled. And because of that, he's able to give the benefits of that covenant to everyone who trusts in him. That's the whole point of Paul's argument in Galatians chapter 3. If you're in Jesus, you get all of the stuff from that covenant. We see other promises connected to this. Matthew 23, for instance which uh, parallels uh, Ezekiel 21:26. Whoever exalts himself will be hum- humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We see it back again in Romans 8, they're talking about the, 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 the futility that we experience. And if the children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be also glorified with Him. We've been adopted. We're we're sons because of Jesus Christ. We're co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And that plays out in the present with regard to suffering. And in the future, Paul promises glory. But it's not a glory of our making. It's the glory of the Son that is given to us. Because we are glorified with Him. We will be glorified with Him. Him, Paul says there in Romans 8, 27, uh, 17. Similarly, James chapter 4 talks about how, again, God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. There's the humility part of it. But then he says, again, humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. There's the pattern. Humble yourselves, He exalts. Same thing. 1 Peter chapter 5, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt you. At the proper time. That's not when you want it. (laughs) As, As much as I wish that were the case. But He will exalt when He believes it's the proper time. But we trust. We are called to live by by faith in the midst of this. But what happens, we often live, as Jack Miller notes, as orphans. And when we live as orphans, we tend to grasp for glory and try to fend for ourselves. I don't know why, but my mind kind of... The the theme song, I, I think, for the orphan is from this Annie. It's a hard knock life which we teasingly sing to our kids. And so imagine uh, uh, Amy's and I amusement when we watched the Lego Ninjago movie and the uh, the character that's voiced by Jackie Chan starts to play that on his flute. <laughs> it's a hard knock life. That's the theme song for someone who really struggles to trust God but really trusts in themselves instead. It's a hard knock, hor- hard knock horrible life. It's a life full of misery. 
which kind of leads to the question, what's the theme song of your life that you kind of go back to? Is it something like a hard knock life? But if we recall our adoption, we can trust that the Father is going to provide all that we need. And that means there's a different theme song to one's life. Uh, there, there, it's a song of hope. It's a song of trust. Way back when, when I was struggling with a depression, and I didn't realize it at the time. That's the, that's the fun thing about depression. You often don't realize it until someone tells you what you were like after the fact. I kept going back. I, 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 I would listen to Jars of Clay's redemption songs over and over. Um, I would listen to Rich Mullins, um, a liturgy, a creed, and a ragamuffin band over and over again because of that song, Hold Me Jesus, as well as the creed. I'd play my guitar and there were certain songs that I would just play over and over again because I needed to hear the gospel preached to me because I was struggling. And when we struggle, it's good to have those songs to say to you what you have trouble saying to yourself. In our men's ministry, we talked about Psalm 73, and oddly enough, I listened to a sermon by Dale Ralph Davis yesterday on Psalm 73 as I was uh, killing the treadmill. And what he notes is, and this is the exact opposite of what we do, but what what he notes is that he was like a beast before God. Not until he went to a counselor. Uh, not until he went and talked to friends. But what really changed it all for the psalmist was he went to the sanctuary of God. And what we tend to do is do anything but go into the presence of God and particularly with his people when we're suffering. And that is the, that is the thing we should be doing. So that the gospel promises are heard by us, the songs are heard by us, and they begin to reorient our heart. Gospel hope sustains us through suffering precisely because we're joined to Jesus. It's like having a life vest. Depression or despair, anxiety will try to sink you. Suffering will try to sink you, but it is the gospel promises that act like a life vest and keep pulling you to the surface so you can breathe again. Right now we are joined with Jesus in the midst of His suffering. But the call of Philippians 2 is to continue to obey even if you're, you're suffering unjustly, just as we talked about from 1 Peter. But in the future, we're going to be joined with Jesus in His exaltation. That, I mean, in a sense, we already are now. Ephesians chapter 2. We have been raised and seated with Him in the heavenly places. But, but we, that's by faith we understand this because of our union with Jesus Christ. But in the future, we will know it and experience it and rejoice and exult in it in a way that we can't even imagine right now because Jesus graciously shares His glory with us. That's how kind and good He is. He's still not hogging the glory for Himself, but He's freely dispensing it to His people. 
What an amazing Savior. And so there's a question there that kind of arises. That, you know, are we going to continue to live for the empty glory of, of Babel that we sort of scrape out of the dust? Or are, are we going to trust this exalted Jesus? Not just the, the this, this Jesus who sacrificed Himself, but also the, the resurrected, ascended Jesus. Are we going to trust Him and receive His eternal glory? And so as I think about the third answer to our larger question, it does pay off, not just for Jesus, it pays off for us, so to speak, because the Father will fulfill His promise to exalt all who humble themselves in Christ, just as He kept His promise to Christ. We can bank on it, precisely because He's already given it to His Son. And if we're joined to a son, we get it too. So, as we kind of try to wrap our brains about this, Christ is calling you, each of us, to confess your thirst for recognition, your thirst for reward, that often drives you to disobey God. He's calling you to receive Christ's suffering for your disobedience and glory-seeking. And then He's calling you to walk in humility because you've been united to the humble one until He exalts you to share in the glory that He shares with the Father. That's what this passage is calling us to. So if we were to sum this up in one sentence, the Father will exalt all who humble themselves by faith as He exalted Jesus, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, I thank You that You kept Your promise to Your Son because I can trust you to keep your promise to me. Father, we acknowledge that humbling ourselves is often painful, but help us to remember it's only for but a time. That we'll be spending far more time exalted in the presence of Jesus than we ever will experiencing these light and momentary troubles. So fill our hearts with that knowledge of truth. May may you, the God of hope, fill us with, with this hope by the power of the Holy Spirit as we trust. And where we fail... Cover our sins in the blood of Jesus. And we ask this in His name. Amen.